You're listening to Colorado Outdoors, the podcast for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. In this episode of Colorado Outdoors, we flash back 20 years and discuss Colorado's efforts to reintroduce the Canada lynx in the San Juan Mountains in southwest Colorado. We'll talk with senior wildlife biologist Scott Waite, who was part of the original reintroduction efforts, as well as Eric O'Dell, CPW Species Conservation Program Manager, who gives us an update on how lynx are doing now in Colorado. And we ask if there are parallels that can be drawn between the lynx reintroduction to an upcoming wolf reintroduction as Coloradans voted to pass Proposition 114, the restoration of gray wolves, a measure directing the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission to develop a plan to reintroduce gray wolves west of the Continental Divide. You're listening to Colorado Outdoors, the podcast for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. I'm your host, Mark Johnson. The podcast is powered by Great Outdoors Colorado. GOCO invests a portion of Colorado lottery proceeds to help preserve and enhance the state's parks, trails, wildlife, rivers, and open spaces. Its independent board awards competitive grants to local governments and land trusts and makes investments through Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Created when voters approved a constitutional amendment back in 1992, GOCO has committed more than $1.2 billion in lottery proceeds to more than 5,200 projects in all 64 counties without any tax dollar support. One of the more fascinating projects that we see in wildlife management is the process of reintroductions. It's been a little over 20 years since lynx were reintroduced to the state of Colorado, and we thought we'd get an update on how the program is coming along and maybe see some parallels with the future introduction of wolves here to the state. Joining us is Scott Waite, Senior Wildlife Biologist for our Southwest region. Scott, welcome to Colorado Outdoors. Let's look back to the beginning of this process. What was the motivation and thinking behind the reintroduction of lynx here in the state of Colorado originally? Thanks, Mark. I appreciate the question, and I appreciate the topic. It's really passionate to me. Um, the The idea came about in the mid-90s and, and really took fruition in the late 90s. Um, I think generally there's two ways to look at the question why. One is, is conceptual, and that is um, an old statement by Aldo Leopold that we need to keep all of the cogs in the wheel. Um, and so that's kind of an ecological concept that an ecosystem that has all of its parts is more stable and more resilient than something that's missing, than when something is missing. The, I, the other way to look at it is kind of just pure logistics and operational. At the time, there was a petition to list links on the Federal Endangered Species Act, and this was an opportunity for the state to do something before the lynx became listed uh, and before it transferred entirely to federal management. Scott, go back to the, the planning process and, and the thinking of, of when this all came about, the when and the where of how it all, all kind of happened. There, there's a great story about that, Mark, and, and I, I love telling it. Um, I was not part of it. 
Um, but at the time, John Muma was our director, and he and a number of employees that are icons, uh, Jim Olterman, Rick Kahn, Gene Byrne, Dave Kinzen, Jeff Madison. So these guys were on a raft trip on the Dolores River, not lynx habitat, had nothing to do with lynx. You can call it maybe a river otter survey if you want. But they were on a raft trip on the Dolores, and, you know, in the evening when you're in camp, and all the good ideas start to come out. That's where somebody said, well, what about lynx? And they discussed it and cussed it. And a couple of days later, they pulled off of the Dolores, and they said, yep, we're moving forward with, with lynx. And, and that was the marching orders from, from Director Muma at the time. We are moving forward with this planning effort, whether it leads to reintroduction or not. We are to start planning for lynx rent. And, and it's, a, it's a great story. I, I love thinking about it. I wish I'd been there. That, that was a bunch of great wildlife managers that came early in my career and, and led the way on this effort. So where did the lynx come from? And, and then how does that process then unfold when you actually have the, the release initially? It started off, the lynx came from Alaska, British Columbia, and the Yukon. And we talked to, obviously, those, but also Northwest Territories, Alberta, about the availability of lynx. Lynx are part of a classic cyclic population cycle that goes on. It's been studied for 200 years in different ways, um, and and so they, they, there's a dramatic swing in the population of lynx, and, and it, when they're readily available, then we felt like those states or provinces would be willing to give us some, uh, but when they become restricted up there, then they don't even allow trapping, or it's very restricted trapping. So, so we, we started off with those three. They were in a relative high population, and yes, they had lynx that would be trapped, and if we wanted to keep them alive and bring them down here for transplant, then, then they were willing to work with us on that. Well, maybe you just answered what I was going to ask next, and that was, do agencies just help one another by, by uh, giving those links for the, the project, or, or is that something that CPW pays for? How does that process, the transaction, work out? No, there is no payment directly for the links. It is a cooperative program between state agencies and, in this case, provincial agencies. Um, our, at the time, our Wildlife Commission directly asked each of their public bodies um, and their directors, are you willing to participate in this? And, and that gave us the go-ahead, um, but we did not pay, so to speak, pay the province or the state okay. or the links. We did, on the other hand, pay the individual trappers. They were out trapping anyway okay. uh, for the pelt. And so they would normally, if, if they wanted that animal, they would kill it and pelt it and, and sell the skin. In our case, we said, no, we want you to keep it alive. Uh, we want to pay you for your services to catch it, to keep it alive, and to eventually get it down to us. And, and generally, uh, and it, it worked differently with each state or province that we worked with. Um, each one was customized, but generally the links went from the trapper 
to a coordinator or somebody that had a holding facility that accumulated a couple links at a time and then got veterinary inspections up there and then somehow got them down to us. So we weren't handling one at a time, but generally three or four would would come down at a time. Okay, and and with that, is there, I I suppose a little bit, you're at the uh, mercy a little bit of the trappers, but uh, you're looking for a mix of male and female, obviously, right? We set up criteria that we wanted um, roughly equal proportions of males and females, and so we would pay a a slightly different price uh, for a male than we would a female, and we would pay more for an adult than we would for a juvenile because there's a somewhat different vulnerability to traps between males and females. Sure. could catch one easier than the other, so we would pay to equal that out. And likewise, uh, we wanted adults that were experienced at living in the wild versus juveniles that might have only had 10 months or a year of life in the wild. So we, we would pay an incentive uh, for them to keep an adult, and then we also had criteria for health minimum standards so that, that uh, they were in good condition. Only The ones that would come down to us would only be in good condition. Scott, take us then to the, the release moment. How does the whole process unfold then once you actually have that release day? Well, it, uh, it, it took a lot to get to that release day. I'll start back at the beginning and, and work, work towards the end. We, we went through a, a pretty rigorous process across the entire state surveying for snowshoe hares, which is the, the dominant prey source for lynx. So we tried to stratify the state uh, based on lynx, or I'm sorry, snowshoe hare abundance mm-hmm. across the state. And, and that entailed literally hundreds of people mostly employees, but some volunteers, and, and going out to randomly picked places and, to put it very simply, looking for snowshoe hair pellets, mm-hmm. fecal pellets. Um, but it was a little more rigorous than that in that we had a very specific plot that we were looking at. Um, and then we also did GIS analysis. So that, uh, sorry, the, the pellets would tell us what, ended up looking like was the San Juan Mountains had a slightly higher abundance of hares than the White River, and the San Isabel had lower than the Rio Grande, and so it it kind of uh, stratified the state that way. And then we also looked at GIS, or Geographic Information System Analysis, um, because we wanted to pick areas that had lower human density, mm-hmm. lower road network density, um, in order to, to give these links the best shot at establishing themselves in the wild. That has um, to be a great experience when you're standing there and yeah, that actual release state to, you yeah. know, to see that animal yeah. reintroduced to the state? Uh, it's, yeah, it's breathtaking. Um, so, yeah, you, you bring me up to the, to the release day, um, it's a culmination, literally, of years and years of work uh, by a lot of dedicated people to get to that. I would characterize it, I, I think, with three words. Exhilaration. Mm-hmm. I was thrilled, and I had an incredible sense of hope 
um, exhilaration because uh, of this huge team effort that, that I got to be involved in. I was thrilled to see it get to that point and just a breathtaking hope that this beautiful, beautiful animal would become established on our landscape again. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it still brings tears to my eyes uh, because it is a, it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. And to see that, and lynx are, are gorgeous animals. They're, they're not big, but they are majestic. They carry themselves with incredible, <laughs> I don't know what the word is. Uh, so there's a majestic nature about them, isn't there? There, there is. They're, they're majestic even though they're not big, but they carry themselves with a, a, a proudness, a dominance that is unmistakable. And, and yeah, they, <laughs> they're mesmerizing to watch. They're just incredible animals. So I, it, it's, but, yeah, I was... Oh, gosh, I sure hope you guys make it. Um, so, yeah, a bunch of different emotions. So over the years when you've had uh, the various introductions, do they take place at the same same spot? Do you, do you move it around the state? How does that work? Well, uh, a bunch of biologists got together and said, yeah, this is where they should go. And um, within about two days, the lynx told us otherwise. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, we started off releasing them on the Rio Grande, in the Rio Grande headwaters um, because that was – the, the best mix of public land, low road density, and and good access during the winter. But within days, the lynx went wherever they wanted, um, and that readily told us that we could put them out. So we started off with a couple release sites on the Rio Grande and a couple release sites on the south side of the San Juans, um, and and they the lynx took it from there. They basically went wherever they wanted. We continued releasing the links only in the San Juans throughout the whole seven-year process. Um, but we did use a variety of release sites ranging from Silverton to east of Creed and from Highway 50 down to Highway 160, roughly. So. Okay. So when were the uh, links last released in the state, and, and and why at that point did CPW stop? What, had they reached their their limit number? What what, what was the thinking there? Um, we we stopped in 2006 for a couple reasons. We we have no idea how many lakes could live in Colorado, even to this day. We don't know. Um, so, but we at that point in 2006, we did realize that we were achieving several of the benchmarks that had been set out from from the beginning. Um, links were widely distributed throughout the San Juans and even throughout Colorado. That was one of the objectives. The second was survival was very good. Even from 1999 releases, there were still some alive. Hmm. Um, but then as we subsequently released more, the, the survival rate for the released animals became very good. Uh, thirdly, uh, and the, the most exciting part is that we, we had a three years of reproduction at that point. The reproduction, these are kittens born in Colorado, where three years where reproduction exceeded mortality. Wow. That meant we had an increasing population. Hmm. 
And so we were putting incredible effort into still getting links down from Canada to Alaska and, and all the effort of, re, of, of getting them in good condition to release down here and then putting them out and then monitoring and then retrapping and all this. And we said, nope, it's time. Let the links do it on their own. So in 2006, we, we stopped the reintroduction part of it. Well, it's a great success story, and uh, you've got some great observations and uh, details about how it all unfolded. Hey, Scott, we really appreciate you joining us here in Colorado Outdoors. Yeah, thank you. Well, now for a little different perspective, we segue from Scott Waite to Eric O'Dell. He is the Species Conservation Program Manager. Eric, we got some great information and insights on the reintroduction of lynx here in the state from Scott a moment ago. Let's uh, come at it from a different direction with you. Why, as you look back in this program, why was it and, and why is it important to have lynx on the landscape here in the state of Colorado? So the lynx are a native species to the state, and, and as the Wildlife Management Agency, we have many different kinds of, of responsibilities, and, and it's not necessarily only to gain species. And having a focus or at least some emphasis on the non-game side of things, those that are not hunted, is is really important. And, you know, lynx are a species that were here historically. We are native animals to the state, and so we felt the responsibility to reestablish and reintroduce the population. So it's it's important from, from that perspective, and it's also, you know, part of the component of, of what makes up that boreal, that forested ecosystem, is, is uh, having all of the, the suite of species that are native to that state. So it was a really important part for us to you know, as we talked to Scott, he was talking about the initial release down to the southwestern part of the state of Colorado, but I, I know these animals have traveled a little bit. Where, where can they be found around the state now? Yeah, they're, they're like you said, their core areas of releases were down in the southwest, but they do disperse, and, and they've dispersed incredible distances. There's, there are some animals that have made their way all the way back up into to Canada in areas close by where they were trapped from, and some that have taken some pretty anomalous courses and, and gone out into the Midwestern part of the United States, but that's not that's not typical. We do get, uh, and we're getting more reports and, and more records of, of lynx establishing in kind of the central part of the state, in that, that Vail Pass area, up into Middle Park, up around Winter Park areas. We don't have you know, real large populations. Definitely the, the core of the population is, is down in the southwest, but they are expanding into that I-70 corridor and into that, that high elevation habitat that exists there for lynx. Tell us about habitat. What, what's ideal for this species in terms of habitat and what they're looking for? Yeah, so lynx are, are as you may know, are, are really uh, reliant on snowshoe hares as their, their primary prey source. And so what, what makes good lynx habitat is what makes good snowshoe hare habitat. And, hmm. and those are areas in this, this higher elevation, you know, 8,500, 9,000 feet in elevation in, in Colorado anyway and above. Uh, snowy winters and, um, you know, some of this area that has... A, a lot of ground cover, a lot of areas that are pretty pretty low to the ground cover that provide good cover for the snowshoe hare, which which the lynx can then use as, as their primary habitat. They you know, the lynx themselves are, are really built for that environment. They they have these just incredible feet that have a, a three inch diameter footprint or, or bigger, and you know they've got so much fur on on their feet that when you see a lynx print on the snow, you, you can't really discern the individual pads of of the lynx like you can from any other. Hmm.
No, Eric, I, I think people are familiar with what mountain lions are like and what uh, maybe bobcats are like, but but maybe not so much with lynx. You talked about their feet a little bit, but how about their, their physical appearance? Uh, are, are there differences between male and females in terms of size, that kind of thing? Yeah, the, so the lynx have this, this beautiful, beautiful coat, and, and it keeps them warm and insulated in the wintertime. They are you know, not as big as a mountain lion and bigger than a, a bobcat. They're uh, one of the ways that we use to discern lynx from bobcat is that the, this is kind of a, a funny way to, to think about it, but the, the tail is really indicative. Both, both lynx and bobcat have uh, the tusks and the ears and, and some, some similar kind of appearances in that way, but when you look at the tail, this is a kind of an interesting thing, when you look at the tail, the tail of a lynx looks as though the whole tail had been dipped in a bottle of ink. That's to say that the whole tail, top and bottom and sides is, is all black, whereas the bobcat has uh, a white on the underside of the tail. And so that's, you know, among other characteristics, that's, that's one of the ways that we can discern between the two. Links are in that 20 to 25-pound range. Um, males are slightly larger than, than females. Uh, they um, have that tufted, tufted ears and, and kind of that, that uh, mane a little bit that, that goes around their, their face, too. Okay. They're um, long-legged. They, they have a uh, long legs to get around in the snow and and like I say, this really beautiful fur, beautiful pelage that generally is a, a pretty solid color, whereas bobcats tend to have a bit more of a, a spotted nature to their fur. Here's kind of a two-part question. Uh, number one, how many? Uh, what's the number of lynx in the state of Colorado? And how does CPW kind of keep tabs on that and, and uh, keep a running total on the number? Yeah, that's a, a question we get a lot. Everybody wants to know how many, how many there are. And, and the, the honest answer is we just don't know. It's, they're really secretive, uh, solitary kind of animals that you just don't easily count. And, and so we have a lot of different ways for, for estimating it. The general estimate is that there's somewhere between 150 and 250 links in the state, but, but we don't know precisely, and we, we never really will just because of some of the logistical challenges with doing that kind of monitoring. When we did all the releases, as, as Scott probably explained, there, you know, all of those animals had collars on them, and we could follow the fate of each individual animal, and, and each one told a really interesting story. And there's a lot that, that goes into that, and there's some expense and, and some, some risk both to the animal and to the biologist when, when you monitor animals that way. And, and so we, we don't do that anymore, except in, in a few circumstances. We really don't put collars on animal on the lynx right now, and, and instead what we're doing is using a, a non-invasive way of, of keeping tabs on the population. And, and what that means is that in the fall we put trail cameras out in uh, certain parts of, of the state down to primarily focused down in the southwest because that's where the core of the population is. We put these trail cameras out in the spring, in the fall and then come back and collect them in the spring. And, and the, the, the cameras aren't just put out willy-nilly. There, there's a statistical design behind how we're, we're doing that. And, and we can then use that to estimate occupancy, which is a, a metric that we look at, as a, a, something that we look at as biologists to, to assess how the population is doing. And, and as well as using this, the trail cameras, we also do snow tracking. So we've got our biologists and wildlife officers that are going out in the, the wintertime and trying to cut a track, see if they can, on their snowmobiles or skis, and, and see if they uh, detect lynx being active in, in a particular grid cell. And, and if so, then we can use that and, and do our statistics on that and, and come up with an assessment for how the population is doing. And, and so far, we're six years into this work, and, and uh, lynx are demonstrating that they're they're uh, at least stable, if, if not slightly increasing down in the southwest part of the state. It's very encouraging findings. 
Here's a, a question you probably get asked quite a bit about prey animals, and I know you do about uh, mountain lions, but in terms of links with uh, being up in the high country, all the recreational activity, how does this species handle kind of the interaction with humans and, and folks being around? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question, and, and especially in some of these areas the, with the backcountry skiing and the snowmobiling, a, a lot of that kind of stuff, especially in the wintertime, uh, can be very intensive. And, and Jake Ivan, one of our researchers, has been a collaborator with some research that the Forest Service has been part of as well, looking at just that question, how, how are lynx using the same landscape as the, the snowmobilers and the skiers and the snowshoers, particularly on Bale Pass as well as some of the areas down in the San Juans in southwest Colorado. And what they're doing is putting GPS collars on, on lynx. This is one of those unique situations where we are putting, where collars have been put back on these animals, or, or not back on, but collars have been put on animals that are uh, in those areas. And then also GPS units, little, little receivers, are given to those recreationists so they can strap it onto their backpack and it logs their route for the day. And then you can compare uh, both in time and, and in space how, how they interact. And, and what we're finding is that there are a lot of areas where um, they, they, they both persist on the landscape. Lynx will use different the, the same landscape but in different ways than, than the snowmobilers or, or skiers will. So mm. they seem to be, in, in some ways, at least somewhat compatible with, with one another. You know, I wonder as I'm, I'm listening to you talk and Scott talk previously about uh, 20 years or over 20 years of success with links and the news we've just gotten about wolves here in the state of Colorado. C- can we learn anything? And is there anything comparable we can use moving forward in terms of what we're about to see with uh, wolves over the next few years? Yeah, lynx, lynx and wolves are, are very different species. In, in every reintroduction program that, that we've been involved with, all has unique challenges and, and unique circumstances to, to think about. Um, when we took on the lynx reintroduction, that had never been done in, in, the, in the world. Nobody had, had done a Canada lynx reintroduction. That's not the case with wolves. Obviously, they have been reintroduced into uh, Yellowstone National Park and up into Idaho as well, and, and there's a lot to learn from that. And there's certainly some things that we've learned from the lynx reintroduction that may be able to, to translate and, and assist us with uh, with a wolf reintroduction that we will be taking on in, in the future. Well, the one thing that I think is very clear, both talking to uh, you and Scott, is that uh, the, the future for lynx here in the state of Colorado, uh, I'd imagine CPW is very confident and uh, very excited about uh, kind of the future and, and uh, where it's all going, I would think. Yeah, like I said, our, our results from our monitoring indicate that the population is, is at least stable down in the southwest part of the state. We've got distribution into to other areas of the state where lynx have been historically. And, uh, you know, it seems as though there's, there's certainly interest. The, the people really love to hear about lynx and, and to learn more about them, and uh, we're, we're really thankful for that and, and really proud of the, the effort that we did began for, you know, over 20 years ago. Well, it certainly is exciting uh, what's happened over the last 20 years. Certainly a successful story. And, Eric, we appreciate uh, all of your insights and thoughts on uh, the in- reintroduction of links here in the state of Colorado. Thanks for your interest. Over 20 years of success with the reintroduction of links here in the Centennial State. And, of course, we'll be watching and talking a great deal more about a similar process in the future with the reintroduction of wolves here in the state of Colorado. Our thanks to Scott White, Senior Wildlife Biologist for our Southwest Region, and Eric O'Dell, Species Conservation Program Manager, for joining us and supplying some great insights and information. Remember, for anything and everything pertaining to Colorado Parks and Wildlife, go to our website at cpw.state.co.us. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Outdoors, powered by Great Outdoors Colorado. I'm your host, Mark Johnson. Until next time, get out and enjoy the great outdoors in our beautiful state, 
of Colorado. Colorado Parks and Wildlife is a nationally recognized leader in conservation, outdoor recreation, and wildlife management. The agency manages 42 state parks, 960 plus species of wildlife in Colorado, more than 350 state wildlife areas, and a host of recreational programs from hunting and fishing to the state's trails program, boat registration, snowmobiles, off-highway vehicles, and more. All of its management is in perpetuity for the enjoyment of Coloradans and its visitors.